All right, we've been in a series talking about being with Jesus is greater than doing for Jesus. And this has really been a series that's personal for me, but I think it's personal for all of us because we live in a culture and in a world that glorifies busyness. We glorify activity. We exalt someone who's always on the grind, who's always putting in the time, who's always moving their life at a certain pace. And I think, honestly, it makes us feel special individually to go, man, I'm just so covered up right now. I can barely handle all the people who want to hang out with me. I can barely handle all the responsibilities that come with my school or my work. And I just want you to know, like, anybody who has an iPhone is going to be busy for the rest of their lives. It's not like cool and like socially acceptable to be busy. It's cool to have a handle on your soul and to not spend your whole life feeling like you're running yourself into the ground. And what we've been talking about is this idea that Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And when Jesus talks about giving us rest, he says, I'll give you rest for your souls. So he's not inviting us into a vacation or a nap or a water break. He's inviting us into the peace that our souls long for. And I just got honest from our stage a couple weeks ago and said, I have a tendency to veer and default so much toward doing that when I do and do and do and do, my soul is getting sick from the overactivity and the overcommitments and being overwhelmed by all of this stuff, that what my soul is longing for is just to slow down and be with Jesus. So here's what we're doing in this series. If I could summarize it in one sentence, it would be this. We are learning to resolve to slow down by being with Jesus. Resolve. What does resolve mean? It's more than making a decision. The word resolve means to firmly choose. To say, no, 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 my life is not going to move at the rhythm that culture demands of me. My life's not going to move at the rhythm of what circumstances happen to come up this week. I'm going to set in motion a new rhythm for my life, and it looks like slowing down to root my life in a loving relationship with my God and Savior. You know you don't have to accept the pace that your friends expect of you. You don't have to accept culture's version of what a meaningful life looks like. You can actually get your soul healthy by learning to do things like say no, by learning to do things like make your time with Jesus, not just a daily priority, but the daily priority. And the reason why I would argue that you need to do that is there's so much like tension I can feel in your faces right now because I feel the busyness. I feel all the activities coming to your mind of going, I'd love to live like that, but you don't know the list of things that I have to do. Here's the great thing about slowing down to be with Jesus. You don't slow down and be with Jesus and lose your efficiency and lose your productivity. You actually gain and maximize your efficiency and productivity in this life because God knows that the meaning of your life is not that you get your to-do list done and accomplish your tasks. The meaning of your life is that you are rooted in a loving relationship with God that manifests itself in a lifestyle of love and that your one life on planet Earth doesn't get wasted just making sure you got it all done. God cares about you. And listen, God wants you to do a good job in school. He wants you to do a good job at home. He wants you to do a good job in your occupation. But he knows the best you is the you that's loving and trusting and serving Jesus. 
So when you, you read a story like the story of Mary and Martha, which I'm going to talk about in church at home, if you've been in church for a while, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus goes over to Martha's house, and Martha's like working in the kitchen, getting frustrated because her sister Mary is not helping. Her sister's in the living room, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. And which sister does Jesus call out? Martha. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Martha, you're worried about many things. It's not your sister that needs to come help you. It's you that needs to put down the dishes and come be with me. And you can feel her tension because it's my tension. It's like, but there's so much to do. I don't have time to stop and be. Somebody's got to cook. Somebody's got to clean the dishes. Like somebody has to do this stuff. But here's what Jesus knew. Until you get a heart that's stilled and at peace by being with Jesus, no amount of doing is actually going to be productive because your heart is in the wrong condition. So it's not that he didn't want Martha to serve. He just didn't want Martha to serve with a weary spirit. And he doesn't want that for you and he doesn't want that for me. He wants us filled from the inside out, from being at his feet so that we can be in the kitchen, so that we can be in the mission field, so that we can go and be lawyers and doctors and all the things that y'all are called to be and do it from a heart that goes, I know my number one priority and it's my relationship with him and my soul's not gonna get burnt out five years in. I'm not gonna be tapping out of Christianity when I'm 35 because I ran myself into the ground. My rhythm is slow down to be with Jesus. And so tonight, man, everything in me, I just wanted to talk about what does it look like to be with Jesus? You can't see him. Like, what does that relational time look like? And I want to give you a list of things that you can do. But here's the reality. If I did that, I would be telling you how to do instead of telling you how to be. It's a relationship. Man, I can give you five prayers to pray. I can give you all the scriptures in the world to read. I can give you music to listen to. I can give you like a timer and say, be silent and just listen and see if God says something. But those are tasks. A relationship is built by continued commitment over the long haul. And so you've got to resolve to slow down by being with Jesus today and next week and next year. And watch, watch what happens. I'm telling you, it might be so awkward the first time. But over time, you'll learn to have a relationship with Jesus that becomes the root and the foundation of your life. So I'm not going to give you five things to do on how to be with Jesus. You'll get some of the practical stuff next week in church at home. I wanted to talk tonight about why is it that we so easily default to doing instead of being? And the reason is more complicated than you think. See, you might think what's going to solve my problem is to do less. Like if I just eliminate some activities from my life, then my heart will be at peace. Then I can slow down and be with Jesus. But here's the reality. Your real problem, like the problem at the root of who you are, is not that you continue to choose activity. Your problem is that you continue to strive after approval. Yeah. Part three of B is greater than do is titled, I'm addicted to approval. I'm addicted to approval, and I just want to be real from the beginning. This is true about me, but this is also true about you. Every single person in this room was created with a level of need on the inside that calls out to be validated, that calls out to be told that you're important, that you're worth something, that you're valued. And if you don't believe me, watch how hard it is for you to ask this question to the person next to you. If, you, if this doesn't feel too awkward, and this might feel awkward for you, all right, if you're brand new and you legitimately don't know the person next to you, do not participate in this. <laughs> and if you're next to somebody that you're like thinking about starting something up with, you should be really nervous. Here we go. You ready? 
Look at the person next to you and ask them, do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? I love it. I love all the different facial expressions. We got a married couple right here. and Grant and Julie, I saw that whole exchange. It cracked me up. You're the happiest married couple in our church. There was a married couple at the 9 a.m. who the husband tried to jokingly ask the wife, like, do you like me? And you could tell that they had had a fight that morning. Like, you could tell that they barely made it to church. She wouldn't even look at him. She was just glued to me, like, "Uh uh-uh, we're not doing the joking. Ha ha, let's forget about the fight that we were in. It was hilarious. And so I've been watching, every time I've been doing that, the exchanges in this room. Here's the thing, that's such a simple question. But it's hard to even let those words come out of your mouth because you feel like a part of you is, is like up for grabs, even if it doesn't even matter. Like we're just making something up. Do you like me? Do you approve of me? Is there, is, is there some level of acceptance and validation that I get from you? What is that on the inside of you that goes, I need to be approved, I need to be liked, I need to feel important, I need to be validated? I wanna argue tonight that that is not a result of your sinful nature. That is actually something God planted on the inside of you. God wired all of us to need approval. Now, I chose the word addiction because it's strong. And when you hear addiction, when I hear addiction, we think of something harmful that like, we need, that our brains are tied to. Think the word addiction minus the harm. God has wired us to have a need on the inside for a certain level of approval. Now, here's how this connects to a lifestyle of rest. I believe that every single person in this room takes that God-sized need for approval, and we all have a tendency to try to earn that approval through activity instead of accept that approval through identity. I'm going to say that again. We all have a tendency to try to earn approval through activity instead of accept approval through identity. And that's the difference between be and do. The Christian life turns your addiction to approval upside down. Because the Christian life doesn't teach that you need to do all of these things so that you can be a child of God. The Christian life teaches that you are a child of God based on the finished work of Jesus. And now increasingly for the rest of your life through a process called sanctification, you actually become more of who you really are over time. So it's weird. It's not that you become different over time. It's that you're growing into your identity that was yours all along. So what you have to choose in a lifestyle of rest is whether or not you're going to do in order to be, that's religion, that's law keeping, or if you're going to accept what God says about you and just be accepted and be validated and be approved and be filled with the Holy Spirit and let your life become an overflow that comes from that filling. That's a message that has been spoken into my life for a long time, but that's one that has been hard for me to truly learn how to apply until I looked at the man in the New Testament who I believed accomplished it in a way that is accessible for you and for me. When I read about the life of the Apostle Paul, it looks nothing like rest to me. He's always traveling. He's always sick with something. He's always getting imprisoned. He's always getting beat up. He has a snake bite him one time randomly when he was just trying to warm himself by a fire. He gets beaten within an inch of his life and then gets up and moves on and keeps preaching in the next town. You read the life of Paul and you go, that doesn't look very peaceful. 
That doesn't look very restful. Yet, I believe Paul was the most at rest Christian who has ever lived because of the health of his internal soul. And I believe Paul's soul got so healthy because he released his need for approval and applause of the crowd. I want to show you how powerful that is. If that's something that you're interested in studying about and you brought your Bible, hold it up right now. Hold it up all over this place. Bible's up at the seven. Bible's up high at the seven. I see you. I see you. All right, here's what we're going to do. I have legitimately seen about three or four formal dates manifest from what we've been doing in this room. If you don't need a date for anything coming up, turn with me to Galatians chapter one. Everybody else leave your Bibles in the air. Bible's high. Bible's high. Freedom to look around. We see you. This, don't be ashamed, bro. You, you had it for this guy. It's just like, I'm going to hold this up until somebody sees me. All right, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. You'd be surprised what God can do through an available life. Okay. Uh, Galatians. Toward the end of your Bible, I want to give you the context of this really, really, really quick. Do any of you guys listen to John Christ, the comedian, or like follow him? I think he's hilarious. He did, uh, he did a bunch of Instagram stories this week while he was watching a Christian movie. And there was one where the, the church was holding up all the Bibles at the end. Did you see this? And he was like, oh, come on. Nobody goes to a church where that many people bring their Bible. And I had so many people send me that Instagram story and say, I do. And I was so pumped up about that because I was like, yes, I love that you guys come in here hungry to learn about the Word of God. One of the things that I saw last week as I just attended church was looking around at how much you guys come in here, like, you want to learn more about the Word of God. And I love that. But you want to know what I love the most about our church? I love that the person holding a Bible is equally as welcome here as the person who has never touched a Bible in their life. See, because we're not grabbing our Bibles, throwing them in the air and going, look at us. We're super spiritual, holy people who want to form a circle and keep everybody else out. No, we want to study the Bible and learn more about Jesus. But the more we learn about Jesus, the more loving we become. And I only say that because there's a little bit of a tension in the church world going on right now. This is things that you talk about when you work in a church, by the way, of whether or not the church should be a place where we we kind of put on a show for non-believers or if the church should be a place that's just for believers to come and get fed and filled up. You know, that place didn't feed me. It wasn't deep enough for me. And then people who go to those type of churches talk like that. But then the people who go to the other churches are like, we need to just, we need to just not offend anybody. And we need to bring everybody in and, and just make sure they have a good experience. Guys, we're teaching that somebody died to save them from sin and hell. And if they don't put their faith and trust in him, they go to hell forever. It's like the most offensive message ever. We're never going to be able to not be offensive. I'm sorry. So if you sing a, if we sing a contemporary song that they hear on the radio, maybe they won't feel offended when we tell them, hey, believe in Jesus or it's bad. No, but here's what I'm saying. Neither of those things work. A church is not a place where we put on a show for nonbelievers, and it's also not a place where we form holy huddles. 
Church is a place where people are hungry for Jesus to be our source from the inside out. But you know what Jesus does when he changes your life? He doesn't make you walk around like this to the rest of the world. He makes you walk around with two eyes that actually see people, that actually notice people, that can actually show grace to people who have never experienced it before. When you can look into the eyes of a person who you go, man, you look nothing like somebody who would belong in church, but you would belong in our church because we're not so obsessed with beating this into your head that we don't see that you have a need and we want to be loved to a lost ark and broken world. That's church. That's what we're trying to build here. And so I just want you to know, like, that's what's on my heart. And, and I'm, I'm preaching this passionately because you guys are already like this. Like, I feel like Paul, when he, I think he tells the Thessalonians, he's like, you guys are already doing everything I'm trying to teach you. You guys are. But this one that I'm teaching tonight about approval, you're not. <laughs> and neither am I. We're getting our souls run into the ground by our need for approval. And I want Paul's perspective to set us free. So check this out. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to get there. Let's just study the Bible together, okay? If you're there, say I'm there. It says this. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a really typical greeting in ancient letter writing. Paul's like, it's me, Paul, grace and peace to you. Paul says that a lot in his letters. I was sent by God, not by men. You'll see why he's arguing that in just one second. But this is a very typical start to a letter for Paul until you read verse 6. And verse 6 is where Galatians becomes the most intense, borderline, angry letter Paul ever writes. Watch this. I am astonished. That word astonished in Greek means dumbfounded. Like, I'm perplexed. I'm blown away. I'm, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse curse. You need to know Paul is fired up in writing this letter to the Galatians because the church that he founded in Galatia has started to believe lies about the message of Jesus. So as Paul was traveling around in the ancient world, he would start churches in really, really strategic areas of the Greco-Roman world. And what would happen is there were these teachers who would come behind Paul once he leaves a certain city, and they would teach the church a different gospel than what Paul taught him. So Paul would come in. What is the gospel? The good news that Jesus has done on your behalf and my behalf what we could never do. Namely, die for our sins and rise from the dead so that we can be made right with God and spend forever with him and live on purpose now. It's the gospel. If you want more about that, two weeks. We're going to do a series called Gospel, and we're going to like firmly set that one in stone. It's good news. Well, what these teachers would teach, they were called Judaizers. They would say, hey, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. But you need Jesus and law-keeping. 
Like, like you need Jesus, in, but you need to stick to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Don't be eating any pork. And men, like, you guys need Jesus. And what he did was great. But you also need to be circumcised. Ouch. And, and especially for the older men in the room, they're like, well, yeah, i got to add that on. And Paul's like, you're so quickly deserting the good news for a different gospel, which is really not good news at all. You're leaving behind the message that Jesus did everything on your behalf for a message that tries to add on to the grace of God. You guys need to know, this series B is greater than do. That's not just a nice series about rest for your souls. That's the debate for 2,000 years in the church about the Bible. So from the beginning, Paul would have to teach them, no, 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 it's not Jesus did this and you need to do this, this, and this. It's Jesus did this. You need to be the child of God that you have already been made. And so this tension in the church, this wouldn't be the last time. About 500 years ago, there was a split in the church where the holy Roman Catholic Church was protested by a group of people called Protestants. That's us, by the way. We are still living in that era of the church. And so I know that we have a lot of people in our church connected to the Catholic Church. I just need to tell you the truth about this. I'm one of them. My dad's family was like an Italian Roman Catholic family from Philadelphia. I get it. I've been to Mass. I've been to Catholic funerals. What you need to know is that 500 years ago, there was a split in the church, and the split was over this issue. Is there anything that human beings need to do to add to the grace of God? Catholics would say, yes. God did all of this, but you got to say your confessions, and you, you've got to say your Hail Marys, and you've got to do this, and you've got to pray to these saints, and you've got to add this on, add this on. And so what happened in the Reformation is that people stood up and said, no, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, solus Christus. It is Jesus who saves. We're not going to add on to what Jesus said with what the Pope has to say. We're going to let Jesus be Jesus and us be surrendered to him. Now, before you get all anti-Catholic and you're like, yeah, you tell them, Miles, please know this. <laughs> there are Christians who go to Catholic churches, true Christians. There are non-Christians who go to Catholic churches and think that they are Christians, but the same can be said over every Protestant church as well, including this one. You're not a Christian because of the church that you go to. You're a Christian based on the relationship that you either have or don't have with God, your Heavenly Father, through Christ. And so that's what happened, and that's how we became Churches that believe, man, we're saved by grace through faith. It's Jesus, only Jesus. But then Paul says, he says, no, you, you don't need to listen to that. He says, even if an angel comes to you and teaches you something contrary to that simple gospel, don't believe it. Don't buy it. You guys ever heard of the church of the Latter-day Saints, Mormons? You guys know that what they believe is rooted in a guy named Joseph Smith who had an encounter with an angel and that encounter with that, I love my quotes, my air quotes, angel. You can tell I don't believe it was an angel. But he claimed that what God revealed to him was the new truth, an elevated truth, greater than some of the fundamental teachings of Christianity. Paul's going, I don't care if it's an angel. I don't care if they seem like the most righteous person who ever lived. First of all, who do you think can make themselves look like an angel that came from God? Oh, that's right, a demon. And so I, he said, if anybody, I don't care who it is, I don't care what they say, if anything contrary to the simple message that Jesus has done on our behalf, what we can't do for ourselves, if that hits you, you don't believe that. And let that person be under God's curse. That's strong language coming from the apostle. Paul. 
And I want you to know what this teaching is rooted in. And as you're hearing it, you're like, is this a message on church history? I thought we were talking about approval. I thought we were talking about rest. We are. But you need to understand it's rooted in, do you believe that the gospel teaches be overdue? And if you do, this is what your life will look like. Look at verse 10. Paul stops. This is a great verse for you to memorize. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Wow. Paul stops while he's calling them out and he says, do you think I'm just trying to win your approval? There was a rumor going around about Paul in the early church that Paul would only preach messages that sounded good to certain people. And Paul's writing this intense letter calling out the Galatians, and he goes, oh, yeah, remember you guys were talking about me and saying that I only tell you what you want to hear? Does it sound like I'm telling you what you want to hear right now? No. Am I still trying to please human beings? Do I want their approval or God? I love this. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, I took this moment in Paul's writing and came to understand that this is not an isolated moment in the life of Paul. This is a central tenet of how he goes about his daily life. Everybody look up here and don't miss this. If your life is hectic, if your life is loaded with activity, with complicated details, with circumstances you can't control, and you want rest for your soul, you need to know this. Paul's life was not easy. But his rest on the inside came from this decision. My life is no longer ruled by voices from within that demand approval. My approval that rules my soul has been shifted from an addiction to the approval of people and even an addiction to my own approval of myself. It is entirely tied into the approval of my heavenly father that has been given to me. And so now the life that results from being given that approval is a life that's holy and pleasing to God. And this is where it would be really easy for me to go, guys, stop living your life for the approval of the wrong people. Just live your life for the approval of the one who's already approved of you. Look at what Jesus did for you. Let's pray. And that's a good message. That's the message I received growing up. And I was like, yeah, yeah, why, why should it matter what other people think? Why should it matter what I think of myself? If Jesus thinks that about me, that should be enough for me. That should be enough for you. Yeah, so, so, so don't worry about Anybody who rejects you, but here's what I found out in my life, and here's what so many of you found out. That doesn't work. Have you tried to do that? How many times have you heard somebody say to you or give you advice or preach a message to you that says, hey, just don't worry about what people think. Worry about what God thinks. Okay. It's like when you're anxious and people go, just trust God. <laughs> yeah, I didn't try to do that. Wow, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> it sounds good. God's approval is all that matters, but it doesn't work. You have to make it work. And I think the reason why it doesn't work is because we try to counteract rejection and criticism with God's approval of us instead of counteracting the real idol in our hearts, which is the applause that we starve for. See, God didn't replace Paul's critics with his approval of Paul. God replaced Paul's need for the approval of the wrong people with his approval of Paul. And he wants to do the same for you. It's only when God 
disarms the power of applause in your life, that he also disarms the power of criticism and rejection over your life. I'll tell you a story to illustrate. I was reading a story in a book I was reading recently. It's a book about rest for lead pastors. So you can tell what I've been living in lately. And a writer told a story about this concert violinist in New York City. And she was interviewed and she was asked by the New York Times, what is it like for you to give a concert one night and have a standing ovation and then wake up the next morning and read in the newspaper all of the criticism of your performance? Like two different extremes within 12 hours. Everybody's cheering you and then everybody's talking negatively about you. How do you deal with the difference between the two? And and her response was so profound. She said this. She said, it used to crush me. No matter how loud the applause was the night before, if I woke up that morning and had one negative review, it just took over me. It defined me. And so she would talk to her friends and say, what should I do about this? And they would say, don't, don't listen to what the, negative, what the haters say. Don't listen to all that. Just, just listen to the applause. That's who you really are. Just boost your self-esteem. But she noticed that that didn't work. And so she said, here's what did work. I stopped looking at the newspaper when I stopped looking at whether or not the crowd was cheering. And now, when I finish a concert, I don't look at the crowd. I look at my conductor. And if he's pleased, I know I did a good job. And if he's not, I know I need to change. But at the end of the day, his opinion is all that matters. If they're cheering and he's shaking his head, I missed it. And if the critics are talking negatively about me, but he's pleased, they don't matter. What you have to do, this is huge, is learn to reorient your identity from even needing the approval and the applause of someone else to why do I look to that to be my source of internal validation? You need to shift your addiction. Yes, you're addicted to approval. We all are. But you need to shift it from whomever you're constantly giving it away to to God, you have approved of me, and I'm no longer looking toward applause to validate me. And the problem with you and the problem with me is that we don't even pay attention to this need until we're rejected, until we're criticized. And then we go, oh, there's something wrong in me. There was something wrong with you five years ago when you were living your life for the approval of the wrong people. You just didn't notice it until you no longer had it. That's what happened to me. I've never realized the power of approval over my life until, honestly, until ACC started to grow. And in the past year, I've gotten counseling, and I love that I, this morning at the 9 a.m., I said, I've been in counseling, and people laughed. And I was like, why are you laughing? You should all be in counseling. It's awesome. Amen? I mean, we need help, y'all, for real. Um, And so what they teach you in counseling is they teach you how to go back in your childhood to, like, representative memories. And there was this one memory that stood out in in, in one particular session that I was a part of, and it was a a memory from Pee Wee Baseball. Any guys in the room remember these days? Yeah, it was a tough time. And so I, I, like... (laughs) I was terrible. My first year playing Pee Wee Baseball, I was one of the kids they put in right field. I was in the out, you can't even hit it in the outfield. The ball's on a tee. No one can hit it in the outfield. And if you do hit it in the outfield, the last place you're going to hit it is right field. Like, I was, in the, I was in the least valuable position. I was that guy who was, like, kicking the dirt off his cleats and chasing fly, not, not fly balls, like literal flies. And so I, w- I was the worst kid out there. 
And it was, it was similar for me with basketball. My first season playing basketball, I, the only basket I scored was on the wrong goal. Whole season. And you want to know why I tell this story? I'm, I'm talking to parents in the room. Always give your kids two years, okay? Because the next year in both of those sports, I was an all-star, Okay, so, so, so get, be patient with your kids. It can take a year for them to kind of get used to it and, and learn it. Now, if you give them two years and they're still not good, <laughs> you have a musician. Or you have, you have an artist and you have someone who's gifted at the, the Matt Cole. And so you, <laughs> where is he? He's such an athlete. Um, he's actually decent. But I'm telling this story about Pee Wee Baseball because when, when they took the ball off the tee and they started putting it in the pitching machine, I was the first kid my age who could hit a home run. So I, was, I wasn't just, I didn't become like from worst to good. I became like from worst to the best player in the league. I was the only kid who can hit a home run. And, and so when I would hit a home run, I would notice like, oh my gosh, everybody goes crazy for this home run thing. Like people are standing up. My mom, and if you can imagine this, my mom is loud. Like, she is such a, oh, my gosh, her personality is just, like, larger than life. Like, she is, like, one time she came out and ran the bases with me. Like, I was Hank Aaron. It was weird. It's a true story. And, um, but, I, but, but I said, this was the memory that stood out in counseling when I described it. I remember the cheers of the audience and how special I felt. But I specifically remember rounding third base because the third base coach wouldn't let me run home without grabbing me and picking me up, throwing me into the air. And I mean, he was, his approval, he was so happy. It, it like made his life that I could hit home runs. And the story only gets more intense when I tell you that the third baseman was my dad. And so from a young age, I learned like, oh, when I do something, an activity that nobody else can do at a level that nobody else can compete with, I feel special. I feel valued. So I spent most of my life trying to outperform peers and outperform people around me simply because I was addicted to the approval of a father. We all are. And this wasn't really a problem as long as I could meet the standard. But here's what so many of you know. You don't notice the problem until you don't meet it. And so I didn't notice how bad my problems really were until I experienced rejection. I started experiencing uh, the, the inability to perform at a high level, the inability to, to be that guy that I thought I was supposed to be in. It wasn't like a small deal to me. It would consume me. ACC started to grow, and one of the things I noticed about growing a ministry in a church is that nobody really talks about you when you're not growing something, and then when you do grow something, people have something to say. And so I would get, I could get 20 emails of encouragement from you guys. But if I got one slamming me, I would skim the 20 emails of encouragement and read that one that was slamming me 20 times. You know what I'm talking about? Like you obsess over the one bit of approval that you didn't get. And I'm like, man, I have a problem. And so I started trying to counteract the criticism with approval. God loves me. They don't matter. God calls me his child. They don't matter. And it wasn't working. Here's what I noticed. The idol isn't that you can't stand rejection. The idol is that you need applause at all. And Jesus' method of delivering you from your need to gain the approval of anyone, including yourself, is not a boost in self-esteem. It's so much love that you live in what is called self-forgetfulness. 
I'm quoting a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. It's, it's a pamphlet more than it's a book, and you need to read it. Everyone in our culture, you need to order that pamphlet right now. There's a joy that comes from a relationship with God, but it's not what you think. God doesn't want to meet with you and go, hey, I love you so much, and don't worry about what they think. Just worry about what I think. God wants to meet with you and go, why do you spend your life thinking about yourself so much? I've already ended the courtroom of public opinion on your behalf. You don't have to spend your life proving yourself to anyone. You can spend your life in love with me because I've proven everything on your behalf. And now you've got the applause and the approval and the blessing of a perfect heavenly father. Oh, that'll replace a lot of wounds. It'll take time. But God will do work on your soul when you decide, you know what? I don't have to wake up every day and go into the courtroom of public opinion on everyone whose approval I want. Some of us live in a trial every day. Like there's legitimately a jury watching you live your life in your mind. There's a judge, there's people all around, and it's like you gotta argue your case that you're worth something. You gotta, you gotta prove it. Here's the gospel. It's not that God's going to make a ruling on your behalf. It's that the gavel has already dropped the case is over. God has declared you pre-approved in the blood of Jesus. And so, believe it. Faith is the Christian life. And our lack of rest is actually the result of unbelief. If you believe the words that I'm about to read over you, they will put your soul at rest. You want to talk about a courtroom? These are the most famous words Paul ever wrote. My favorite verses in the entire Bible. You don't got to turn there. I'm going to read them and I want you to feel them. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Case closed. No condemnation. Son, daughter, complete. Jesus has finished it. And now I get to spend my life being loved by God and doing because I am loved. That word because. Be is your cause. Be a child of God. And so I do what I do. But I don't do what I do to earn anything. I got nothing to prove to anybody. My life has ended and it is now hidden with God in Christ, this is the way out of a restless, weary soul. You want rest on the inside? Take your addiction to approval. Take whatever applause you're trying to earn and replace it with what Jesus has done on your behalf. And B, I'm telling you, B is greater than do. So if you want to live like this, if you want to get where Paul got, it's going to take time. You're not going to get there in one sermon. You're not going to get there in one night, but I believe, I'm dreaming about the day that we live lives holy and pleasing to God, church. And when Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that a life holy and pleasing to God is the result of living in view of God's mercy, you come to understand that like your life being an offering before God isn't to gain God's approval. It's because you have God's approval. 
And so God's like, God's like getting me free on the inside to where I'm getting up here on Sundays and I'm thinking less about impressing you and thinking less about what you think about my preaching. You know what I'm thinking about right now? I'm thinking about if you're actually going to do what I'm teaching you and if it will actually help you. And I believe our addiction to approval is actually the root of so many dysfunctional, broken, harmful patterns that we continue to step into. And so I want you free because I'm tasting some of this freedom and it happens over time. Here's how it happens. I want you to ask yourself these questions. I don't have points tonight. I just have a method of reflection that I want to give to you. I'm addicted to approval. What do you need to do? Well, when you feel that approval rising up in you, here's what I want, to ask, here's what I want you to ask yourself, and I promise we're done. Ask yourself, what am I trying to prove to whom for what? This is how you can start to put on the mind of Christ. This is how you can start to think like Paul. Ask yourself, what am I trying to prove to whom for what? God's message to you is not, you're important, you're valuable, stop trying to prove yourself. Uh uh. His message is, hey, the very fact that you're trying to prove yourself reveals that you've forgotten about your true identity in me. You have nothing to prove, you have a life to serve. And when you start waking up in the morning without an empty soul that says, prove yourself that you're valuable, that you're important, and you wake up in the morning with a soul that's full, and you go, I get to pour out my life as an offering for other people to know that they are loved by the God who loves me. Guess what you're free from? Needing people's approval. Guess what you're free from? Needing the likes. Needing the comments. This is a glorious life that God is offering us, and it starts with asking you, hey, what are you trying to prove And not, we've assumed for so long that God's just going to come in there and coddle us and go, hey, hey, you've got nothing to prove. You're good. You're awesome. But I believe what God wants to say is, why do you think you need to prove anything? I've done it all already. Let me be me and you just be you. It is self-forgetfulness, not self-esteem that's going to get us there. So what are you trying to prove? To whom? That's huge. That's your idol. Is it a sibling? Is it a parent? Is it yourself? This is huge. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. What he's saying is, even if I approve of myself, that doesn't matter. It is God who I'm trying to please. Let me tell you people who are going to be really blown away when they get to heaven and go come face to face with Jesus and go, oh my gosh, he never knew me. It's people who live their whole life believing the lie that you being okay with yourself is the goal of humanity. You can approve of your behavior. You can approve of your lifestyle. You can approve all you want. You didn't make you. God did. So Paul goes, I, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean that I'm innocent. I'm not living for my own approval. So it's not just the approval of others that we need to address. It's when, when are you living to try to impress yourself? And when are you living to try to impress God, not believing at the core of who you are, that he already loves you and he's already pleased? So when you ask yourself, what am I trying to prove? I shouldn't be spending my life proving anything because it's not about me. It's about forgetting about myself. I've died hidden in God with Christ. Okay. To whom? I'm trying to prove myself to them. Okay. What does God say about that? Now, if you're trying to prove yourself to God, here's what I want you to know. God's pleased with you, but not necessarily. God's a good father. So think about meeting with your dad when you haven't been living right. 
You don't question whether or not a good father loves you, but a good father is not going to leave that meeting without telling you to change. So you invite a relationship with God into your life. He's like the conductor, and the violinist knows if he doesn't approve, I need to change. So when God gets with you, he's not just going to go, hey, I love you, and it's okay that you keep destroying your life, and it's okay that you keep dating the wrong people, and it's okay that you're so greedy, and it's okay that you're just stuck in that pattern of sin. And no, he's going to go, I'm not okay with this. I created you to be my child. And the more you believe that you're my child, the more you're going to experience the freedom and fullness that I created you for, and we will change. You will change. He'll speak loud and clear, but you'll love him for it. Because he's better. What am I trying to prove? To whom and for what? Last thought I want to give to you tonight is what, what do you gain by gaining the approval of whoever you're trying to prove yourself to? Most of the people who you live your life competing to impress aren't even watching you. <laughs> this is embarrassing. <laughs> you want to know why? Because they're just like you. They're self-centered. They're watching themselves. The freedom that comes from living for the approval of God is living a life that actually means something. So why? Why do I feel like I have the need to prove anything? Oh, yeah, that's right. Because God created me with an addiction to approval. Have I received it today from God? The message of the gospel is be who you are. And it's also you are who you're being. So be the child of God that he calls you to be but I I believe that while you're talking, Miles, but I won't believe that tomorrow. So remind yourself tomorrow. What do you think Jesus was doing when he was alone with his father? Do you you think he had like more of the Bible to memorize? He, He wrote it. He's good on the biblical knowledge thing. Do you think he had like, he had to do it? See, I think Jesus' entire ministry was spent in moments alone with his father to remind himself of the original moment that started it all, his baptism. You ever thought about how weird it is that Jesus got baptized? Because what do we believe about baptism? Baptism is a response to salvation. It's a celebration of the forgiveness of sins. We're buried into baptism, into his death, raised to new life, washed away from our sins. We're going to have baptisms in a couple of weeks, and if you haven't signed up and you want to get baptized, you need to. But why was Jesus baptized? When he's about to get baptized, John the Baptist says, hey, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And I love Jesus because Jesus doesn't disagree with him. He's like, no, you're not. Um, He's like, but you need to do this. This must be done to fulfill all righteousness. What does righteousness mean? It means to be made right with God. And when Jesus is baptized, his father shouts from heaven, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism wasn't for Jesus' salvation. No, he is salvation. Jesus' baptism wasn't forgiveness of sins. He had no sin. Jesus' baptism was the fuel for his ministry, and his fuel was his Father's approval. And every time he got alone with God, I believe there was somewhat of a reminder, you're still my child. You're still that guy. You're still the one I called in that moment. We need reminders, and if Jesus needed it, how bad do you need it? How bad do I need it? God loves you. He's pleased. But you'll forget by tomorrow. You'll forget by next week. 
So what you need to do is get alone long enough to go, okay, what am I trying to prove? To who? For what? I've already been made into the image of a child of God. You are a daughter of the King. You are a son of the Most High. Believe it. Let's stand up all over this room. We're going to sing as we close our time together. Put your Bibles away. I want to give people who have never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior the opportunity to do so. Would you close your eyes all over this room? If you're here tonight and you'd say, Miles, how I'd love to say out loud for the first time that I accept my Heavenly Father's love for me. And this is your moment. Don't hold back for one more second. There are so many people around you right now who have said yes to the love of God. You are not alone in this moment. If you're here tonight and you'd say, Miles, I've never given my life to Jesus, but I want to. I want to know that I'm loved by my Heavenly Father. I want to know that I'm sealed in the family of God. If that's you tonight, would you just lift up your hand all over this room and say, that's me. I want Jesus, Lord and Savior. I believe he died. I believe he rose. Amazing. Amazing. You'll never be the same. 